one thing, Michelle, that we haven't really talked about with regards to student loan forgiveness and government public policy and things like that is the impact of student loan repayment programs by employers. There's been a lot of talk around free college, and I know many employers will do tuition reimbursement. That was always a benefit in the tax code. But today, more and more companies are starting to offer some amount of student loan repayment as a benefit. Now, typically, these companies are white-collar companies and stuff. So, you know, there's some probably equity and fairness issues around that too. But another way that student loan forgiveness could be achieved or people with student loans today could get some more help while waiting on government is to look at employers with these programs. And I know that these programs are held up for a long time because there was a lot of uh, regulatory concerns about how the IRS would view this and, you know, would be treated as compensation and therefore taxable. And, and you know, and companies right now can do things like, well, for every dollar of student loan repayment, you make, you know, companies can chip in $1 into your 401k on your behalf, right? So you can sort of pay down your debt while, while the company is helping you save. But, but for a long time, the regulations around doing that kind of thing wasn't really clear. So student loan repayment as a benefit program is a relatively new phenomenon. When we talk about like how to solve this problem, then another way to solve this problem really could be is let's work through the tax code to make student loan repayment as a benefit by companies more widely available, right? So I will tell you, in my personal opinion, I really like the concept because people can choose where they go to work, right? Like you're not forced to work for company A versus company B. And companies would have to compete for workers with different pays and benefits and things like that. And so, you know, this would present a solution that could apply to a lot of people and give people a lot of freedom of choice in terms of how they want to benefit from it. I love that because that, that could work. I actually, I really love that framing of this because I think part of the problem with some of these other forgiveness solutions is they feel very draconian and very difficult to navigate around and that there is somewhat of a lack of freedom around what you can do. I do have the opinion that many of these programs are a little excessive in terms of how many years you need to be in the program and things like that. But I love this idea of putting industry on notice and saying, hey, if you want people to be educated in such a way that they can even be competitive to work with you, you need to also think about the benefits that people will find compelling to say yes to work with you. Exactly. And this is not necessarily just a white collar thing, but many companies that look for tradespeople, you know, there, you know, for a while now, there's been discussion about how there's a shortage of tradespeople, but a lot of companies now will pay for trade school for employees, right? And things like that. So, um, and, and trade school isn't always free. So you have these benefits and, and it gives people the choice, you know, you're not necessarily forced to take on a career of certain type of career, like a public service or a teacher loan forgiveness. If, if that's not your thing, that's not your thing. But this could be the average history major who works for a great company that has this loan forgiveness program and they could qualify for it. It can work out pretty well if, you know, if it's done. And so I think that, I think sometimes, you know, the focus on loan forgiveness is, okay, what's the government going to do? What's the government going to do? And perhaps one of the solutions is the government should set up the framework to allow companies to help come in and provide the solution. If you're looking for some guidance on what to do with your student loans and you need an outside perspective on what your options are, Student Loan Planner may be the resource for you. Schedule a paid consultation with one of Student Loan Planner's student loan consultants who will walk you through what your options are. Student Loan Planner has a 99% satisfaction rate and a whole person-focused approach when helping their clients. If you're worried about saving for retirement, going on vacation, and the impact of your student loan repayment on those goals, Student Loan planner consultants understand and respect those concerns and keep that in mind while working with you. 
please note, if you're listening to this episode in 2022, you have until October 31st, 2022 to submit your public service loan forgiveness waiver. I've also included a link in the show notes. I'm proud to partner with Student Loan Planner. And if you're interested in scheduling your student loan paid consultation, go to the following link, michelleismoneyhungry.com backslash student loan plan. Finally, I would like to thank the Plutus Foundation for its support of the Michelle is Money Hungry podcast. The Plutus Foundation supports financial content creators with grants, networking, learning events, and podcasts. Twice a year, Plutus provides grants for financial literacy projects of all types. The foundation highlights excellence throughout the Plutus Awards, and you can see how you can make a bigger impact with your audience at Plutus Voices and the Plutus Impact Summit. Go to PlutusFoundation.org for more information. Please note, Michelle is Money Hungry is for entertainment purposes only. Content should not be considered financial advice, and listeners are encouraged to do their own due diligence. Welcome to Michelle is Money Hungry, a podcast that has real and empathetic conversations that often focus on the intersection of policy and the financial conversations we're really afraid to have. I'm your host, Michelle Jackson, and this summer, I'm having conversations all about the potential for student loan forgiveness and what will happen if we move forward with the policy and what happens if we don't. My name is Jack Wang. I'm actually with the Innovative Advisory Group, which is, uh, I'm actually based in Massachusetts, Northwest of Boston. And what I do is really twofold relating to college. So on the front end, I help families whose students are trying to get in and pay for college. And I help those families by figuring out strategies on how to lower the cost of college, and then with strategies on how to actually pay for it so it doesn't wreck their finances. But of course, I also work with families and students who are now out of college, but unfortunately have taken on a large amount of debt for either the undergraduate or the graduate years. And I help them with strategies on how to best manage their debt, pay it down quickly, free up cash flow, whatever it is that their goal is they're trying to achieve. I'm curious about how you got into this field. Like, how did this all come together? And could you walk through some of the strategies that you share? to help inbound students pay for college? Yeah, so how I got into this originally uh, on the front end, right, which is the getting into college and paying, you know, maximizing financial aid, I should say, that was from a personal experience. And so when my sons were junior high slash young high school, I was getting divorced. And so like a lot of people who end up helping others with various topics, right, financial or otherwise, um, it was my own personal experience that I needed to solve for myself. So at the time, as part of that divorce settlement process, we were trying to make a provision for college because college wasn't that far away. And at the time, I I knew sort of what most people know, you know, save for college, you know, save it starting day one when your kid's born and hopefully have enough by the time your kid goes to school. And, you know, public schools are cheaper than private schools and some of the misconceptions out there like that. And so I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of folks who were real experts in the industry. In fact, they worked for colleges and I was asking them questions, not because I was trying to build a business out of it. I, I, I was asking them because I need to know for myself. And what I found was that there's a whole world that, you know, like many things, you don't know what you don't know. So even today, a lot of these things you can't Google not because it's not available, it's just you wouldn't even know the questions to ask. And so if I, I realize that, hey, if I need help with this, other people probably do as well. So that's really where it started was I needed help for myself. <clears throat> so that's the first time. But some of the strategies, um, with especially on the front end of maximizing aid to college, uh, there's actually a lot of analogies and it comes simply from recognizing that colleges effectively are businesses, though they are majority nonprofit, but that doesn't lessen the need of them need, needing paying customers, right, to pay as much as possible. And so if you use 
a sports analogy or a airline ticket analogy uh, or buying car analogies. Those are all very comparable to how college works, which is the bottom line is that the more the school wants your student, the more money they will give, whether you are poor or a billionaire. And the misconception in that is that, oh, my kid got into college, so that means they want them. That, that's not remotely true at all. Getting admitted to college simply is an invitation for you to pay full sticker price, which a, a lot of colleges these days can run in excess of $80,000 a year. Getting admitted with a lot of money, that's when they want you. And so people don't often think about it in those terms because they think, oh, my kid does this, my kid does that. But it's really how you compare with the rest of the applicant pool and what the school's goals are, not how much your kid really wants to go to a particular college, right? So it's, it's a very different mindset. And so uh, once people recognize that, you, you can then play to the limit of the rules and really start to get maximum amounts of aid, which then hopefully helps you avoid student debt down the road. What kind of aid are you talking about? Are you talking about Pell Grants or scholarships or what type of aid is out there and how are parents who aren't working with you supposed to even have a gauge for this? <laughs> yeah, uh, let me address that last point first. What I tell people is that both on the admissions side, right, simply getting your kid into college, but also on the financial aid side and the paying for college side, these are very much games with finite rules and Essentially, what happens for most families is that they're trying to play a game where they don't know all the rules or what they know is out of date, out of date because they're basing it on what the parents experienced 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. And that would be uh, similar to comparing basketball today. Right. The NBA of today versus professional basketball in the 1950s. Yes, there's a ball. There's a hoop, there's five guys on the court for each team, but they're just fundamentally different game, right? It's just not even close to how they used to play versus how they play today. College financial aid is very similar. So, you know, a lot of times when families don't take the time to learn about, you know, like many things, they don't take the time to learn about sort of what the rules are and how the things, this is when they get into trouble. Um, the types of aid I'm really talking about. So. So I'm sure you've heard, along with, I'm sure most, if not all of your listeners, heard about, you know, hey, fill out the FAFSA, fill out the FAFSA. That's the financial aid form, right? Free application for federal student aid, FAFSA. And yes, you should always fill out the FAFSA, but the FAFSA largely governs federal aid or money that comes from the federal government. And if you look at the raw numbers, the federal government is the largest source of aid. It's something like 160 billion a year or so, give, give or take. But roughly two thirds of that, I think, uh, is in the form of loans. And with the federal government, yes, there are preferential loans and you know, some, you know, loans that some have uh, lower interest rates or more repayment terms than others. But generally speaking, whether you're really poor or you're a billionaire, you qualify for loans by simply filling out the FAFSA. And I and while loans can be a helpful tool, I don't necessarily consider loans as aid because after all, you have to pay it back. The aid that comes from the colleges themselves, and this is in the form of grants and scholarships predominantly, or almost all. What you find is that colleges themselves give more aid than the federal government, right? If you, if you exclude the loan part, right? Because again, you got to pay it back. That the, the schools themselves actually offer more aid than the federal government. So, so good news, bad news, right? Um, you can, there's a lot of aid out there. Good news. Bad news is because it's the school's own money, it's their rules, right? So if you want access to that money, you have to follow their rules. And unfortunately, there's, you know, 4,000 colleges in the United States and the or colleges and universities in the United States. You know, there's not quite 4,000 sets of rules, but but it's pretty close and everybody views it a little bit differently. Uh, what I will say, just to kind of wrap up this point, is that everybody then thinks, well, okay, that's great, Jack, but 
you know, but that's only colleges that have the big endowments. They're, they're the ones who give the most money. And that's actually not true at all. There are colleges with huge endowments, but aid from a college doesn't always come from an endowment, right? Because what, what people forget, or let me say what people think is, hey, colleges need a certain number of students to show up, right? Generally speaking, that's true. But it's not just the number, is colleges need a certain number of students at an average certain price to show up. So just as a very simplified hypothetical example, if you have a college that costs $80,000 a year and you have one, but, but that college is really only needing $40,000 a year, what's called net tuition revenue. So you have one student go to this college and pay $80,000 a year. The second student can actually be free. Right, because between the two students, you can average out, and the school would hit its target of forty thousand dollars of average price. So, schools that don't have big endowments, a lot of that aid tends to get subsidized by the students who pay full price. Right. So, my very simplified example: the kid who played paid eighty thousand dollars effectively got kid number two the full ride. Right, because the college was only expecting, let's say, forty on average. And there you go. So it is not, bottom line, it is not a requirement for a college to have a huge endowment in order for a student to get a lot of aid from that college. I want to ask very pointedly, how the hell will I find this out? Like if I'm a mom right now who's got a kid going into school and I'm understanding this about like kind of the, I, I listen to this episode and I hear this first part of the conversation and I'm like, well, how do I understand the and then what? So I understand that, you know, school XYZ has a thousand incoming freshmen. And out of that thousand freshmen, they just need 672 to pay, you know, a certain amount. And the other kids will be able to, sub- it, it, they will be able to subsidize, subsidize the other kids to some degree or fashion. How do I even understand or into it the the next step or what to ask tell me what's the question i should ask if i'm the mom listening or dad listening to this episode parent caregiver adult what have you because i know i'll get someone emailing and be like michelle you should it you know where i'm going with this what right. what's the one question you know how like sometimes people talk about like if you're going to speak with a sponsor this is what you should lead with that was easy you always let the sponsor lead the conversation right you never sit there and say i want to have such xyz dollar amount you you always say what's your budget so what's the question i should should ask in order to get them to lead that kind of financial aid conversation believe it or not it's actually really simple right conceptually i mean of course you know the details matter but the question that parents should ask is actually very simple. Now, before I give you that question, let's just understand the sort of what typically happens. So when students and parents work with their high school guidance counselor or, or whoever to figure out where they should apply for college, families are generally, you know, especially if you have a high achieving student, you're generally looking at the name. Right? And so you think about the most commonly asked questions about college, things like, what GPA do I need to get into this college? What, what test score do I need? How do they evaluate extracurriculars? How many letters of recommendation do I need? How closely do they read the essay? Or how many essays do I have to write? Things like that. And those are important questions, but all of those questions fall under the broad umbrella of trying to figure out what schools will accept your student. Right. And to that end, even working with high school guidance counselors, they often have a three tiered approach, which is a list of schools that are so called reaches, which is, hey, you know, we'll take a shot at this, but your chances of getting in aren't really good. But hey, you never know, you might get lucky. Then you have your targets, which is your chances of getting in are really high. And then you have your safeties, which are your slam dunks. But the question that's never asked, and I, you know, and I've sat through many information sessions and gone on many tours because I've had kids myself, they're older and I have a couple of stepkids. The question that is never asked is not about what do I need, you know, what do I need to do to get in? The question that's never asked is what do you need to get a scholarship? Right. And so I'll give you a perfect example. 
there's a private school on the East Coast where I am, where I sat through one of the information sessions and they were talking about, well, you know, last year our, our freshman class had a GPA of this and an SAT of that and so on and so forth. And, and, it, and the numbers weren't tremendously high. So as you look around the room, you could see kind of the sigh of relief. Okay, okay, not too bad. Now, to some other parents' credit, someone actually did ask this question. So someone asked, well, okay, but what do you need in order to get a scholarship? And at this particular private school, what you needed to get a scholarship was so much higher than what you needed simply to get in, right? The, the required GPA was just orders of magnitude higher. The required SAT was orders of magnitude higher. And, but parents and students don't think about that, right? The whole world revolves around where can I get in? Where will, what school accept me? Where can I get into here? Can I get into there? But that one question alone, okay, great, thanks. You know, I know what I need to do to get in, but what do I need to do to get a scholarship? That question is basically never asked. And so parents took the time to ask that one question and students, they would be a lot further ahead because then it would not be a guessing game. Because what happens today, Michelle, is that parents and students apply to colleges and then they hope, they hope that their kids ends up getting a scholarship. And of course, and, and given the topic that we're talking about, many families are disappointed or they get a scholarship, but much smaller than what they were hoping for. But if you know that up front, hey, either I'm really in the running for a big scholarship or I'm just completely out of the ballpark for a scholarship, then you know up front and you can plan accordingly as to whether or not you want to continue pursuing that school, right? But that one question alone, it's just a totally different perspective, but quite frankly, no, you know, you know, I know there's exceptions, everything, but it, bottom line is like nobody ever asks, but it's a totally different answer than trying to figure out what schools will accept. I like that we started our student loan forgiveness conversation kind of from the incoming student perspective, but I'm going to pivot our talk, our conversation now to folks who have already gone through the system. Um, so currently, ironically, as we go into this conversation, it's it's becoming more and more clear from the chatter that uh, made its way onto Twitter today at the end of May that the Biden administration is looking at about a $10,000 forgiveness program versus blanket, blanket forgiveness or, or a higher amount around $50,000, you know, up to capping out at $50,000. And the student loan forgiveness program to me is, is like a tale of multiple cities, you know, like, you know how they have the, it's a tale of two cities. It's like a tale of several cities, not just two. Like there's, there's many different conversations that are happening that are umbrellaed or siloed underneath this topic. For me, those would be just overall college affordability. It would be, we've been in, in a pandemic and there's this economic uncertainty. So we made adjustments. The government made adjustments related to that uncertainty. And now the question is, and then what, and what's next? There's the question around how will this policy impact inflation? How will this, this policy impact people's spending? Or how will this policy, will this even make a difference? And how can we, is there even a problem? Some people don't feel like there's a problem. Or finally, just if something happens, if there's some kind of policy that does move forward, how do we avoid being in the place that we're at now, where people feel like they're in a distressed financial space connected to the student loans that they were loaned. I say this all to say that in the context of this series, we're talking about many different types of people, but in the immediate sense, we're really talking about adults who have already completed, finished their studies, and they've had, to some degree, had a financial experience with these loans that for some reason, some people feel was negative. What is your view on the proposed policy? Again, it, the information coming out starting to tighten up and the 10,000 does seem to be where the administration is starting to settle on. What, what's your view on the potential of a student loan forgiveness program? What are some of the things that should be considered positive, negative in between that you feel like 
aren't being talked about enough? And, and what are some of your concerns or, or maybe you don't have any concerns about this as a policy? You touched upon a lot of things there. And I think you're absolutely right in that student loan forgiveness, whether it's 10,000, 50,000, all of it, whatever, there's so many facets to this that it's hard to know where to even begin because, and I'll just say this. So when my sons attended college, I took out a small federal parent plus loan, which I still have. It's very, it's very small. Uh, but you know, I would, Hey, I would love to get that forgiven too. Right. I know that plus loans really aren't part of the discussion or they haven't been part of the discussion, but you know, if, if the, the Biden administration or, or, or quite frankly, any administration wants to wipe that clean for me, I, <laughs> Great, have at it. Thank you. But I also recognize that there are so many questions, and and you know, first and foremost, what comes to mind for those who have already gone through the college process, you know, college experience, and now have the loans, is is just the issue of equity and fairness, right? You you know, you think about people who just paid off their loan, right? So if if, if the Biden administration forgives the loan today. What happens to the people who sent in their last payment yesterday, for, for example? Um, and then the people who, of course, saved for college uh, so they didn't have to take on any debt, or the people who, uh, let's say, went to a lower cost college so they didn't have to take in rent when they could have gone somewhere else. So there, so I think sometimes when we, when we hear about this issue, um, I think sometimes it's made to sound like, well, you know, just just press a button and 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 ten thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars or whatever the case disappears. And that's simply not the case, right? It's just it's not that simple. So there's an issue of equity. the The second thing also that I think about is how it would be implemented because, you know, anybody listening to this who has student debt, they probably don't have one loan. They have multiple loans. Right. And so, for example, if you took a $10,000 forgiveness and let's just say the equivalent, someone hands you a $10,000 check. Now you you send that into your servicer. Just there is a practical aspect of, well, do they take that $10,000 and they proportion it out among all your loans? So, you know, so if you have 10 loans, every loan gets a $1,000 pay down. Or can you direct to a particular loan? Because depending on how that's set up, it may or may not make a difference in your monthly payment, right? So if, so if you have a student loan, let's say one big consolidated loan for $300,000, hypothetically, and you throw a $10,000 payment at it, yes, of course, you, you'll take the $10,000 and it'll save a little bit of interest and it does help, of course. But the question that becomes is, does it really make a difference, right? So do it really solve the problem if you have a lot of debt versus if you only have, let's say, $9,000 left and, you know, you get the $10,000 forgiveness. Now the whole thing's gone and you no longer have to make a payment, which then, ben you know, which then everybody says would benefit the economy and stimulate consumption and, and housing purchases and stuff like that, because you no longer have the impediment or the drag of student loan payments. So, you know, I, I think, I think just even beyond the broader issue of how do you actually implement this? There can be a lot of discussion on, and and I don't, and I haven't seen very much about it, and maybe it's a little bit too soon to even talk about that. But in a lot of situation, I can see even helping my own clients today that how you allocate that ten thousand dollars, or if you have even control to allocate that ten thousand dollars, that can make a huge difference, right? Versus just taking a blanket ten thousand dollars check, if you will. And then, and then more broadly, you know, I think you brought up a good point about is inflationary. You know, I'm not an economist, so I, I can't really address that. Although, you know, my my basic level of, you know, economics, and I did, and by the way, I did take economics in college. I just remember that there were a lot of tests. I don't remember if there was a lot of <laughs> economics, but there were a lot of tests. But could that cause inflation? Well, I, I suppose so, because you're, I, I think, I think student loan forgiveness is effectively an uh, indirect expansion of the money supply. I also think, and one of the points you touched upon is how does this impact future generations? I know that we are mostly talking about current, you know, people who are out of school current, is I truly do worry about the impact on how families whose kids will go to college in the future, what kind of unintended consequences will that 
make cause whatever the right to cause i guess and I, and i have i certainly have my thoughts but i don't know because it's it's hard to prove sometimes but there are a lot of issues and so i'll just say this for myself would i like to see some level of loan forgiveness yeah yeah yes yeah but i i think like many things the devil's in the details and and that I worry more about unintended consequences and issues of fairness and the things I mentioned that cause me to say, I don't think you should just, just you know, push a button or just, just call it right, 10,000, 50,000, whatever, just, and just clear it out. I, I think that there's a lot more issues that need to get discussed so that it can be structured and implemented the best way possible to benefit the most people possible while not or minimizing, you know, alienating the, the person who just paid off their loan or something. And I, and quite frankly, I've noted what that, what that answer is, but I, I, I think, I think we just need to be very careful about doing this. I actually, as you're talking about the person who just paid their loans, I'm thinking that there may be room, a credit or I don't know, something, some kind of benefit to folks who've just completed their studies or just completed somehow they can, they can show that they've paid off their student loans. And maybe there's like, you know, how there's an energy credit to actually, I'm going to put it this way in, is it Colorado or just Denver? I'm going to say it's Colorado. We now have an electric vehicle, electric bike credit. And it's actually a pretty significant one. I feel like it's Denver. And now everyone's like, oh, heck, this is like so awesome. We're going to go get our electric bikes because we've got this credit that we can apply for. And and I wonder, is there a way that we can assist folks who've gone, who, who have or have not gone through this system and incentivize them in a different way? Do you know what I mean? So I'm thinking of the $8,000 down payment program that Obama did for first-time homeowners, mm-hmm. something along those lines, or maybe someone opts to do a year of service. Actually, the previous guest and I, just before we start recording, we're talking and she brought up this point of national service. And maybe there's a national service program that's created with that in mind of, of hey, you complete a certain percentage of service and we'll, we'll do this for you. I don't know, but I, I, I definitely feel like there is room to be creative and to, to think outside the box so that people feel like they're getting something too. Right. And, 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 you know, and there are a lot of examples of that. And in fact, to a certain extent, some of that already exists, right? So, so, you know, in the 60s, there was the Peace Corps, and today there's AmeriCorps. But if you think about the public service loan forgiveness program, now that's not, I don't think necessarily people think of it as national service, but it's very similar of those lines where it incented people to, you know, work in nonprofits or social service agencies or whatever, or government. And with the promise of, hey, you know, if you need to go on and get your master's or whatever to become a, let's say, a social worker catering to low-income families that will relieve the burden of the debt through that. So, so to a certain extent, I know it's not probably not what, what most people think about in terms of national service, but, but it is a form of that already, right? So, so public service loan forgiveness program is sort of takes care of that already in a way. And then there's also things like teacher forgiveness, where you can get a chunk of your loans, not all of them, but uh, I think about 50 or so percent of your loans forgiven if you teach a certain number of years in a urban slash low income district. There's some criteria for that, right? So that is another form of a national service type of concept, if you will. I I do like those ideas. And then at the state level, for example, Maine has target loan repayment help. So if you graduate within the last X number of years and you work in a STEM field, in Maine, right, you live and work in Maine and you work in Stemfield, you get a bigger tax credit against state income taxes to help offset the cost of student loans. If you graduate within the last X number of years, but you're outside the STEM field, then the credit is actually a little bit smaller, but it does still exist. And so I really like those programs. 
because I think it, you know, it really lays out sort of what some good public policy initiatives could be. But then, but, but then the bad news, right, is that is that that's subject to political whims and politicians and people don't always gr- make great public policy decisions. You know, I, I think if we as a country could agree, or even at the state level to, uh, you know, to do something like that, whether it's uh, some sort of community service or na- or national service or certain fields, whether it's STEM or like healthcare or first responder, you know, are part of, you know, usually the most typical ones that are targeted, then I think that might make some sense. And you, and you could re- apply that retroactively in, in some way, right? So the state of Maine does it as a credit against state income taxes. So they're not forgiving your loan. They'll just knock down your tax bill equivalent to a certain amount of how much you paid on your loan. So you could do these things fairly easily. And I say fairly easily in air quotes because you know, <laughs> I, I think the discussion around those is a little bit easier than just trying to get blanket loan forgiveness at the federal level. But, but to your point though, is these types of things do already exist, but maybe not to the degree. And certainly there's no, um, the only thing that's uniform would be public service loan forgiveness and the teacher grant. But aside from that, there's not a lot of uniformity among the states in, in their own initiatives. And I think that that's where some of the frustration lies is that it feels unnecessarily complex depending on where you live. I actually have two very different questions. So the first is when you work with your clients who are post post-grad, I, I'm assuming they're many different ages. Mm-hmm. What are some of the stories that they've told you about or how they were advised around the lending vehicles that they ended up ultimately ended up with? Like, what do they tell you was the conversation like in graduate school or, or undergrad or what have you? And they go to, you know, financial aid to get their loans to pay for tuition and, and room and board. Do they tell you what that process was like? Did people guide them? Were they cautioned about the amount? I, I, I'm curious about the insight that you have around that. You know, I do hear about that quite a bit. And the stories that come out of that are almost always consistent, which is they basically got no guidance. Because, because also here, here's a difference, right? So the financial aid office or a bank or, or other student loan lender, they can tell you what you can do, but not what you should do. So one of the most common questions I get for those who have debt already is, should I go ahead and consolidate? Right. So if you go to the financial aid office or you go to a student loan, a student loan lender and you ask them, well, should I consolidate? The, the answer that comes back is, well, you can consolidate. Right. And unfortunately, this is true for all aspects of finance is that unfortunately, a lot of people view these things very transactionally and not strategically. And they don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not they should do something in the in the context of their overall finances, right? So, especially in the case of loans, what you know, the number one thing that people look at is the interest rate, right? Hey, I can refinance for a percent lower. Let's do it. Okay, that may or may not be a good deal. It's not always a good deal, depending on your circumstances, what you're trying to accomplish, but. Most people would take that deal because what do they see? Oh, my interest rate is going to be 1% less. I'll pay less in interest. I'm good. And, and very few people take the time to really step back and think about whether they should, right? So when I hear stories about what kind of guidance do they get, it's very commonly, well, we are presented with a bunch of options, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, but not necessarily what we should do, right? Again, that's a totally different question. And so as a result, you know, when people manage their finances very transactionally, you see finances that can be kind of disjointed or, or don't make a lot of sense. And actually, I'll give you a perfect example from the before college world. There's a family that I'm aware of where they're really concerned with, you know, their, their student is high school, going to college soon and next year or so. And the family is very concerned with retirement. So they're socking away all tons of money, you know, tons of money into their retirement plan. Hey, you know, we can argue the merits of that, but it's generally not a bad idea to do so. But as a result, 
right? They don't have a lot of other savings and certainly not for college. So they're going to have to borrow, this particular family, going to have to borrow almost $70,000 a year for undergraduate. And I tried to point out to them, what they did was they viewed these two things as two separately separate and distinct transactions. And what I tried to point out to them is they're actually not because, hey, you might get a, a great rate on the $70,000 a year loan, but and you'll have a lot of money saved for retirement, but they're going to wash out because in retirement, you're going to be up to your eyeballs and loan payments, right? So all that money that you saved in retirement accounts, you're just going to have to pay it to the, <laughs> to the loan servicer, right? You're really not going to be able to enjoy it. So why not do something different to where maybe they don't have to take on as much debt? Yeah, they, they might not have as much in retirement savings, but they also might not have as much debt. So, you know, in that case, they're not any worse off because sort of one washes the other, right? And so, but what my point is that before I talked to them, they're like, oh yeah, we're going to be able to borrow this money and we'll just look for the lowest interest rate and there you go. Well, not quite, again, not quite that simple, right? You have to view it more broadly and stuff. So uh, I, I think that the, the bottom line is that not enough people get the question of what should they do answered. And 99.9% .9 of the time, at least what I've observed, is they get what can they do answered, which are, again, are two very different questions. If you were tasked with fixing what many feel to be a problem with uh, the cost of higher education and the lending associated with it, especially because much of the lending is, is associated with the federal government. What would be three, maybe four strategies or logistical changes that you would make in order to improve the system for future students? Well, you have to think about the student loans and in particular federal student loans have features that simply do not exist any, anywhere else. So for example, Michelle, if you were gonna go off and buy a house, Right? And you need to get a mortgage. You would go to a bank or a mortgage company and you would apply for the mortgage and they would come back and they would approve you or deny you, or they would say, okay, we'll approve you, but only to a certain amount, right? Only to 300,000, you know, whatever the number is, okay? Because they're looking, looking at your credit score, they're looking at your debt to income ratio, because, you know, part of their job in underwriting is they want to make sure they get paid back, right? Now, Yes, there's stories of people who can't pay and stuff happens. I, I get that. But generally speaking, they're trying to make sure they can pay them back. But if you got approved for $300,000, but instead you want to buy a $500,000 house, you have to come up with the other cash, right? Because the bank will no longer lend you any more money because, you know, how they view is you're maxed out, right? So there is this guardrail, if you will however imperfect, but there's a guardrail, whether you're buying houses, cars, or whatever, that the bank is not is, is going to provide a little bit of a guardrail to not have you overextend yourself. But that guardrail, that safety net, whatever you want to call it, that doesn't exist for student loans, for federal loans, right? Because at the undergraduate level, the direct loans for students, the, the borrowing is very limited. So that's not really the problem. But the parent plus loan, you can borrow all the way up to the full cost of attendance, the sick price of the college, which again, some places run higher than $80,000 a year. And there's essentially no credit check, which means that you could have a terrible credit score and be jobless and still be able to borrow $80,000 a year, right? Because that guardrail isn't there, right? And so one of the changes that I would make is to impose some sort of structure on that, you know, to impose some level of guardrail. And, 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 and the problem, by the way, is even worse at the graduate school level, because at the graduate school level, the student can borrow the, what's called a direct grad loan for $20,500, and then they can use the grad plus loan for whatever, whatever else that they need. So this, you know, so a lot of the stories of, hey, you know, I graduated $300,000 of debt, that doesn't come from undergraduate. It comes from graduate. And then further compounded by the fact that, hey, I have $300,000 of debt, by, but unfortunately, I couldn't find a job in my field, so I'm working at the donut shop down the street, right? That, like, that's the stereotypical story. That we <laughs> because there's no guardrail, right? There's no, there no checks or balances. Now, 
I, I suppose if you really think about that, one could argue, well, maybe that's somehow discriminatory or you're discriminating against maybe lower income families. So now they can't really get a loan because <laughs> they're low income, right? And they, if they didn't have the college money saved for it, then they can't get the loan and there you go. Yeah, and that's a valid argument. I'm not quite sure what the, the solution to that is, but, um, but right now, basically parents and students at the, at the graduate level, they can, they can borrow wherever they need it, right? And so that's debt. Actually, muck. I know the solution, which is a lot of schools with very large endowments are starting to do tuition-free schooling. They are finding solutions related to this problem for folks who hit a certain financial threshold. And actually back to your initial point, which is scholarships and grant money, I think in the case of that you're, you're proposing, students should be moved into a system that would get them in front of that money too, in order to build in an equitable, fair lending, if you will. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there are schools now where I know uh, an Ivy League uh, East Coast school announced not that long ago that if your family income is below a certain level, there's no tuition at all. Tuition is free. You basically just have to cover room and board, which is a pretty good deal, right? And then uh, many other schools, upper tier schools and Ivy League schools are using what's called a no loan model, which is if you get in, if you get into that school and you qualify for financial aid, then they will give you aid in the form of scholarships, grants, and work study, but no loans. So those those do occur today. The, the, of course, the challenge with those are that they tend to exist at the <clears throat> most elite or the most competitive schools where it is harder for a, let's say, a first-gen low-income family to, to get it. Okay, that, that's, and that's a whole nother discussion, right? But the reality is that the majority of colleges in the United States, they depend on net tuition revenue. They depend on students showing up, paying an average price or higher because they don't have the big endowments. And so that model of, hey, let's just give all the low-income families like you know, a bunch of aid, no loans, that doesn't really work at a lot of the non-upper tier schools that are still great colleges in and of themselves, but they don't have the support of that endowment to fund operations if they're not getting it in tuition revenue. So I, I agree with you. There is a solution to this. It's a little bit harder. But but that also brings me to my other point. I, I think that solving this problem and, and whether the administration wipes out 10,000, 50,000 or all of debt, how do we not end up here again? I think is the biggest problem of all. Because I can tell you in my work with families, ego plays a huge, I mean huge part of this process because you know if you can say hey my kid goes to harvard that's still pretty impressive right of course you you know as a parent you can say my kid goes to harvard what you don't say then is yeah my kids you know we're up to our eyeballs in debt because that doesn't sound quite so impressive (laughs) um right and so i call it like the thanksgiving dinner effect which is you know you know, pre-pandemic or now hopefully post-pandemic, everybody gathers around a big table, you know, for Thanksgiving, you have all your distant relatives come in and stuff. You know, families don't admit this, but but I know what happens and I can kind of tell what happens that, you know, the parents want to be able to tell that that idiot cousin or the, the idiot uncle, like, oh yeah, yeah, my kid goes to Harvard. How about your kid? Right. And and you know, and kind of rub it in their face. It happens. And so so what ends up happening and how it plays out is these upper tier schools are extremely competitive and they're extremely selective, but they're extremely selective because they're because so many people, right? Everybody in their dog applies to them or tries to apply to them. And and then when families get in, I've so many families say, Well, if my kid got to Harvard, I'll just do whatever it takes. They go, right? Okay, I need to borrow the 80 grand a year. Okay, I'm yep, done. My because it's Harvard right? Or because it's Stanford or because of what I'm picking on Harvard, but it's really any one of those. And that, I'm not sure you can, how you change that, because I know in other countries where college is free or whatever, they, you know, the mindset is different, but here in the United States, community colleges are great schools in and of themselves, right? The, the regional publics are great schools. The smaller privates are great schools, right? There's something for everybody, but in this country, at the end of the day, be able to say that my kid goes to Ivy League versus is is simply seen at a as a higher value thing than saying my kid goes to community college, right? It's not fair. I don't think it's fair. 
but unfortunately, it's also kind of true, right? And 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 we saw this really with the uh, with the FBI investigation, the whole varsity blues thing. Like, if you didn't see value in the schools that they were trying to get their kids into, why would you bribe a guy five hundred thousand dollars to get your kid in? Right? Oh my god, I totally forgot about that. I told Lori Lori Laughlin and right. her really rich husband who's into fashion. I forget who the who he is. I totally forgot about that because to them the name meant something right so because why would you why would you possibly do that otherwise if it if if you the, the thing is but but now but they had the money right for Lori Laughlin and, and some of those other people they had they they had the means to write the five hundred thousand dollar check to bribe somebody to get their kid in terrible true but it but obviously it happens but for the rest of us who can't just write a check for five hundred thousand dollars right the ego and the pride and the and the prestige is there like yeah if my kid gets into ivy league i'm going to do everything i can to send that kid which then necessarily for many many families means that they're taking on that debt again which means that even if all the student debt is wiped out today at some point in the future we're going to have this whole conversation again if other things don't change and so i i have a real concern about that too with regards to loan forgiveness is that is this really just a band-aid and we're just going to end up here again in like five, five years? I, you know, I don't, whatever. Right. What's really crazy to me as I wrap up these conversations is how all of you guests in this podcast mini season, you're very different people, but a lot of your, I'd say 90% of your solutions are almost all the same. It is <laughs> wild to me how, um, because I purposely reached out to people who were against the policy, as well as people who supported it and people who are neutral. And across the board, all of you kind of talked about really similar concerns and, and provided some very similar solutions at the heart of dealing with this problem. So I appreciate your time so much. If you could share who you are and what you do one more time. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much. It's really interesting you, you say that. So I guess I, let me just say this one final thing. I think focusing on student debt forgiveness is the wrong problem, right? Based on what I said earlier. So I, I think you asked earlier sort of what's what's missed in the news or what are people not thinking? I, I don't think student loan forgiveness is the right problem to solve. Right, because of all these other issues, but that be that as it may. What is the right question that we should be asking? I understand that people have debt now and they're burdened by it, and I feel really bad about it, and I get it. And again, I have a little tiny loan. It's not a burden, but I, but I have debt too. But at the end of the day, the, the right problem, in my opinion, to solve is to restructure how higher ed operates and how it's paid for Right and and the and the perceived value of some schools versus others. I'm not saying that we should go to a European model or whatever. That that's not the point. But the point is that my opinion is, do student loan forgiveness today? It's really just a band aid because the ego issue and the the perceived value of an Ivy League versus a community college. Um, and, until you address those things, we're just going to be here again. Perhaps the the question or the solution is you do something targeted for the people who have debt today while you are fundamentally restructuring the industry in whatever form that looks like because I, I just don't I don't want to end here again <laughs> for for anybody's sake quite frankly never mind my own all right now tell us where to find you all right Jack Wang innovative advisory group I am also on Facebook under my program name called Smart College Buyer because I help families become smart college buyers. So I'm also on LinkedIn. So I share a lot of content around managing student loans, around college, financial aid, getting into college, all that stuff. So because ultimately my mission is to help people win the game, get a great education and pay for it efficiently without having to take on a lot of debt, if at all. I appreciate this conversation so much and you shared so much and I hope people were taking notes. Thank you.